All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Yacht Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov. I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 14 on vessel diseases. The diseases we'll be talking about today essentially put the vascular in cardiovascular. And through this episode, we'll mainly focus on hypertension in a way that exams like to approach it. And we'll also be covering a few other uh, pathologies related to aortic, arterial, and venous issues. Specifically, we'll be going over hypertension, aortic dissection, aortic aneurysms, peripheral artery disease, and venous insufficiency. So it's important to note that vessels, either due to age, atherosclerotic disease, or a secondary cause, undergo these typical changes in their musculature over time that can manifest as the conditions we'll talk about today. So we're going to jump into the specific pathophysiology for each of these diseases as we move through the cases. So Ben, take it away with our first case. So a healthy 45-year-old female comes in for follow-up of a high blood pressure reading at her last appointment of 145 over 93. Her blood pressure today is 150 over 95. Her other vitals are normal and her BMI is 27. She has never smoked and rarely drinks alcohol. Several relatives have hypertension. Yaakov, what's our management plan for her? So technically, she hasn't been diagnosed with essential hypertension yet because you actually need three abnormal measurements. So we need her to come back in a few weeks for, for another measurement. Nice catch. So she comes back again and has a blood pressure of 148 over 92. We diagnose her with essential hypertension. First off, what's the pathophysiology behind this condition? So essential hypertension is actually a bit of a mystery. Uh, and we know that while many factors contribute to its development, like genetics, family history, uh, weight gain, and lifestyle, the exact pathophysiology is poorly understood. Okay, but let's say instead of a 45-year-old female, we had a 70-year-old female and her blood pressure was 160 over 80. Would that clarify the pathophys? Uh, yes, it would. This would be considered primary isolated systolic hypertension since, I don't know if you caught that on the first read, but for those listening, her systolic blood pressure was elevated while her diastolic was normal. Uh, and that's usually a result of age-related increased uh, arterial rigidity. Perfect. So back to our 45-year-old female. What seems to be her hypertension risk factors? So uh, if you recall from the question stem, her BMI was greater than 25, and she had a family history of hypertension. Both of those are significant risk factors. In general, what's the greatest risk factor for hypertension? So greatest risk factor for hypertension is actually obesity, especially central obesity. Okay. There are also several labs they want you to know that need to be sent for a newly diagnosed hypertensive patient. What are the main categories of labs? Yeah, so we would want renal function tests for sure, because we know hypertension can affect the kidneys pretty adversely. We would also want several endocrine tests, which we'll talk about, and cardiac tests. What are the important renal function tests and why do we order them specifically? So we'd want electrolytes, creatinine, and a, U and a UA, and we send them to check that the hypertension is a primary process and if there's any end organ damage from the hypertension. In other words, to check the cause and effects of the hypertension. Yep, exactly. Okay, and which endocrine tests do we send? So in terms of the endocrine tests, we would definitely want an A1C or glucose to screen for diabetes since hypertension and diabetes are highly comorbid. We would also send a lipid profile since hyperlipidemia is also comorbid. And they'll often send a TSH as well to see if the hypertension is from any sort of hyperthyroidism. And finally, which cardiac tests can we send? So everyone should get an EKG to evaluate for electrical abnormalities or old infarct. Um, and an echo can be sent to evaluate the effects of the hypertension on any cardiac remodeling. 
okay, so let's say we send all of these labs for our 45-year-old and they're normal. What can we try first before medications? So lifestyle modifications is the really important thing to know. So always try lifestyle modifications first um, in the appropriate clinical setting. Right. And what are the five major modifications that they like to test on? So one is a DASH diet, which is a, a low sodium diet. Another one is weight loss, aerobic exercise, and just general dietary sodium restriction and alcohol reduction. And which of those five strategies is the most effective? So the most effective of those is actually the DASH diet. Uh, and that'll include reducing um, the fat and salt in your diet while increasing fruits and vegetables. Weight loss, especially more than 10 kilograms, would be the next best option. Okay, let's say her blood pressure does not improve after a few months of these changes. What's next? So next, we would turn to our antihypertensive medications. Uh, and our first line ones that we think about in most patients are thiazide diuretics, calcium channel blockers, ACEs or ARBs, and to a lesser extent, which we'll get into, beta blockers. Are we going to cover how we choose an agent based on comorbidities in our CV Farm lecture? Absolutely, we will. So stay tuned for that episode. So let's jump into our next case, a 55-year-old male with a past medical history of diabetes, coronary artery disease, and stroke comes in to follow up on resistant hypertension. He's on four different antihypertensive drugs at a maximum dose, and his blood pressure is still 180 over 110 in the office today. So Ben, does this sound like essential hypertension to you? No, it sounds like his hypertension is secondary to another process. And why is that? Because it's rare to have primary hypertension, which is resistant to so many high-dose medications and is still as high as 180 over 110. So what do you think is the cause of this patient's hypertension, given his risk factors? Yeah, this sounds like a renal artery stenosis picture to me. And what gives you that idea? So this 55-year-old patient with diabetes and coronary artery disease likely has a high atherosclerotic burden in his vessels, including his renal arteries, which can cause functional stenosis. And how does that lead to resistant hypertension? So the decreased blood flow to the kidneys is sensed by the juxtaglomerular cells, activating the ROS system, causing vasoconstriction and increased volume retention. Great. And what's another clinical manifestation of renal artery stenosis other than hypertension? Recurrent flash pulmonary edema. Uh, likely from that increased intravascular volume and pressure that we spoke about. Nice. And what's the classic physical exam finding for renal artery stenosis? An abdominal brewery. Sometimes they like to describe it as a systolic, diastolic, or periumbilical brewery. And isn't there another cause of secondary hypertension, which can present with, a, with an abdominal brewery? Indeed there is. It's fibromuscular dysplasia. Nice. And how would that present? usually in a young adult female with bruise all over, especially in the abdomen and the head and neck. Clinically, uh, neurological manifestations such as amaurosis fugax and even stroke are possible. Gotcha. And how do we diagnose renal artery stenosis either from atherosclerosis or like we just talked about fibromuscular dysplasia? So usually we'd go to abdominal ultrasound or of course an abdominal CT will do the trick. Now, I'm going to give you a few different clinical presentations, and you're going to tell me the cause of the patient's hypertension and the best next step. How does that sound? Sounds incredible. Okay, beautiful. Good, because you technically don't have a choice. So our patient is a 45-year-old male who presents with hypertension, bilateral upper abdominal masses, and a family history of early sudden death. What do you think this person's cause of hypertension is? 
So that sounds like autosomal dominant uh, polycystic kidney disease, since the kidneys will be enlarged, hence the abdominal masses. The hypertension generally presents between ages 40 to 50. And the sudden death was probably caused from a ruptured berry aneurysm in his father. So we'd want an abdominal ultrasound to look at those kidneys. Perfect. And that's great attention and detail. So next, let's say your patient is a 40-year-old female with new hypertension, anxiety, depression, kidney stones, and muscle aches. What do you think of there? That sounds like hyperparathyroidism, which causes hypercalcemia, which then can deposit in vessels and cause hypertension, as well as the neuropsychiatric symptoms and the you know, bone symptoms that, that she's having. So the best next step is going to be serum electrolytes to look at that calcium. Awesome. So two for two. That's perfect. Next, let's say we have a 30-year-old female presenting with weight loss, anxiety, heat intolerance, tachycardia, and hypertension. That sounds like hyperthyroidism to me. Let's get a TSH. That's perfect. Yep. Fast, quick, and dirty. I love it. Uh, and fun fact, both hyper and hypothyroid can technically cause hypertension. Wow. I cannot wait to get to our endocrinology episodes, Yaakov. I know. It's going to be great. Me neither. And let's just do one last one. Let's say we have a 30-year-old with hypertension, and on basic labs, they have a potassium of 3.2. What do you think of there? Ooh, that's a subtle hint, but it sounds like primary hyperaldosteronism, since the aldosterone will cause excess potassium excretion. We'd want an, an aldosterone-renin ratio, which we would expect to be abnormally elevated. Nice. And what are two other endocrine causes of hypertension that are worth mentioning that we'll likely cover separately? A pheochromocytoma, which would cause paroxysmal hypertension, as well as uh, Cushing syndrome. Nice. That's a perfect way to wrap up hypertension. Let's move into our other pathologies for the rest of the episode. So take us away. All right. So now we have a 65-year-old male who comes into the emergency department after avoiding doctors since his 13th birthday. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. This is bar mitzvah. He, <laughs> he's experiencing intense chest pain. Radiating to, radiating to his back between his shoulder blades. EKG shows tachycardia and left ventricular hypertrophy criteria with nonspecific ST and NT abnormalities. What pathology does this sound like? So this sounds like a classic presentation of acute aortic dissection, which is that tearing chest pain radiating to the back. And what risk factor likely predisposed him to this condition? He probably has an unknown history of longstanding uncontrolled hypertension, uh, the main risk factor for dissection is uncontrolled hypertension, so that's very likely, but it can also be related to cocaine use or even Marfan syndrome. Why does hypertension predispose to dissection? So the longstanding and cumulative wall stress on the aorta actually weakens the muscle within the vessel. Okay. What's the characteristic x-ray finding in aortic dissection, though it's not always present? So you can sometimes see widening of the mediastinum for aortic dissection. But how do we diagnose the dissection definitively? So definitively, either CT angiography or a transesophageal echo. And what will the dissection look like on a CT? So what you'll see is a false and true lumen separated by an intimal tear. As you can imagine, there are many possible complications of aortic dissection. What's the most commonly tested one? Absolutely. So the most commonly tested complication for aortic dissection would be acute aortic regurge as the, uh, the dissection reaches the valve eventually and allows reverse flow. And how does that manifest when they have that acute aortic regurge? So the characteristic is an early diastolic decrescendo murmur, as well as flash pulmonary edema. 
Okay. And other than that, what are a few other complications of aortic dissection worth mentioning? So if the carotid artery is affected, then an ischemic stroke can result. Um, dissection can also lead to fluid in the pericardium and pleural cavity, causing tamponade and hemothorax, respectively. Wow. Sounds like we want to treat this immediately to prevent those complications. What's our immediate pharmacotherapy for aortic dissection? Absolutely. So you're going to want to immediately give IV beta blockers. Specifically, we turn to labetalol and esmolol, but also propranolol uh, can come up on exams, but really pay attention to labetalol and esmolol. And how do those help exactly? So they'll lower blood pressure directly and also decrease aortic wall stress by decreasing left ventricular contractility. And is there anything else we can add for treatment other than the beta blockers? So if the beta blockers don't decrease the blood pressure to 120, you can also add nitroprusside. And of course you want pain control with morphine. And what determines whether or not the patient needs surgery? So this is a high yield question. So a type A dissection, i.e. one that involves the ascending aorta, is the indication for emergency surgery. Great. So that wraps up dissection. Yakov, take us away for the next one. So now for a new but seemingly similar case, let's say a 70-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension comes in with moderate chest discomfort while he was binging Emily in Paris on Netflix. Oh man, that's, that's a real shame. I know. I know. Very upsetting. But let's say he has no other symptoms and his vitals are normal. He endorses a 30-pack year history and chest x-ray shows mediastinal widening. What pathology does this sound like? That sounds like a thoracic aortic aneurysm. Nice. And how can you differentiate this from the aortic dissection we just talked about? So two main things. One, the pain is much less severe and doesn't have that classic radiation. Uh, and his vitals are completely normal. Great. And what's the risk factor and pathophys behind a thoracic aortic aneurysm? Essentially, age-related degeneration of connective tissue in the aorta, in addition to hypertension. Connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos also can increase risk. I have a feeling that this patient is also at risk for another type of aneurysm. That's actually a great feeling because he is at risk of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. And what puts him at risk for abdominal aortic aneurysm, aka a triple A? So his smoking history, male sex, and age between 65 to 75 are, are all the main risk factors. Atherosclerosis in general is the main risk factor for AAA. So smoking is his strongest predisposing factor. Nice. And what should we do while he's in the office? We should probably screen him from AAA with an abdominal ultrasound. So let's shift gears now and talk about some vessels other than the aorta. I would love to do that. So now we have a 60-year-old male with a 40-pack year history who comes in with six months of pain in his left thigh while walking, but not at rest. On exam, popliteal and dorsalis pedis pulses are diminished also on the left. What pathology does this sound like, and what is its pathophys? So this sounds like peripheral artery disease, which is due to atherosclerotic narrowing of arteries in the extremities. And what's the specific name for the symptom he's having? So that intermittent leg pain with exertion is what we call claudication. And then what is a simple diagnostic tool we can use to confirm our suspicion that this is PAD? So we can do something called an ankle brachial index or ABI, which is just the ratio of the blood pressure at the ankle and at the arm. And a low index would suggest occlusion and therefore a PAD. Great. So let's say he has an ABI 
of 0.72 on the left. What's our initial management of this patient? So due to his increased risk of myocardial infarction with his risk factors, both aspirin and a statin are indicated. And to treat the PAD itself, the first step is smoking cessation and a supervised exercise program. That comes up a lot on exams. Yep. And that is a perfect way to end PAD. Take us away for our last case. Alrighty. So let's say we have a 60-year-old female with hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, and a 20-pack year history presenting with leg swelling and pain that's worse at night. Vitals show blood pressure of 150 over 90 and a BMI of 32. Exam shows normal JVP, 2 plus pitting edema to her knees, dilated and tortuous veins, and a small ulcer on the medial malleolus. So Ben, what condition does this sound like? This sounds like she has chronic venous insufficiency for sure. Nice. And what leads you to the diagnosis of chronic venous insufficiency? The swelling is worse at night. Uh, and she has these skin changes, which are consistent with chronic stasis dermatitis, as well as the classic ulcer at the medial malleolus. Great. And what are the pathophys and predisposing factors for venous insufficiency? With age, venous valves degenerate, allowing blood to pool in the lower extremities. This is worsened in patients who are obese, such as our patient here, or with a history of DVT. Great. And what diagnostic test can confirm the diagnosis? a venous Doppler ultrasound. And finally, how do we treat venous insufficiency? Generally, simple modifications like leg elevation, increased exercise, and compression stockings provide relief for these patients. Awesome. So that wraps up episode 14 on vessels. We hope you found it helpful. And thanks so much for tuning in.